This is season one of Betting On It, an eight episode series where we follow one betting industry startup on its journey to raise seed capital. Betting On It is brought to you by GeoComply, who provides fraud prevention and cybersecurity solutions that detect location fraud and help verify a user's true digital identity. Trusted by leading brands and regulators for the past 10 years, their geolocation solutions are installed on over 400 million devices and analyze over a billion transactions every month. To learn more, visit www.geocomply.com. All right, we are back for episode five of Betting On It. And as always, we welcome back Drew and Sawhill from Bets Booster. Gents, how are you doing today? Doing awesome, Jesse. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks, Sahil. I'm really excited for this discussion because we have another fantastic guest joining us who once again happens to be a previous guest of the podcast. With us is Aaron Bash, co-founder of Sparkit, who we last spoke with about six months ago in November of last year. And Aaron, it's great to speak with you again. From what I can tell from the outside looking in, you and the team at Sparkit have been firing on all cylinders since your podcast appearance. So maybe before we get into today's discussion, you can give us and the folks listening a quick update on how everything is going at Sparkit from your perspective. Yeah, thanks for the intro there, Jesse, and uh, appreciate that. We have been getting a lot of things going since we last chatted, I think. That was during the midst of our crowdfunding raise, so good topic to get into this. Um, we've since then raised some additional capital. We've got some more deals in place, hired a director of sales, and are in Stadia Ventures' current accelerator cohort, who is one of our investors, and it's been an awesome experience so far. Right on. Great update, Aaron. Uh, glad to hear things are going as well as they are for you and the Sparkit team. But uh, let's leave Sparkit there and get to the matter at hand, which is Bets Booster's preparations to raise a seed round of their own. As you alluded to, the reason we asked you to join us today, Aaron, is because for Sparkit's fundraising journey, you chose to raise capital via a public crowdfunding campaign, which we frankly haven't seen a lot of from companies within the industry. So we wanted to do a deep dive on the topic of crowdfunding based on your experience with it, as Bets Booster considers this as an option within its own fundraising strategy. So that's the topic, and the plan is for Drew and Sahil to ask you some questions directly. But before they start, I'll ask one opening question to you, Aaron, which is, can you just take a minute or two up front and share a bit of context for the audience on Sparkit's crowdfunding campaign and maybe hit some of the key points of your experience with it? Definitely. Um, I think a couple things. One is uh, it was a good experience overall with crowdfunding, but it's a lot of work from you know your side. And I think choosing the right platform and vehicle to do it is probably important as well. And, you know, economy is kind of crazy. So sometimes you do stuff that you need to do to get things done. We were exceeded our expectations on there, but, it, it, you know, good experience, but it's definitely a lot of work. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, out of curiosity, which platform did you use and would you recommend it? Yeah, so we use Start Engine which has the, you know, Kevin O'Leary is the, the face of that one. And we had some of our advisor investors recommend that platform. So we went for it. I think, you know, the first thing with all these is the due diligence process, which is pretty long and arduous, which helps actually when you're talking to VCs, because now you've gone and done this whole process of getting everything together in your, your deal room or, or your share file or whatever. And it, it takes a while to get everything organized and have everyone come through everything and make sure everything's, you know, up to whatever regulation they need. On top of that, you are technically filing some stuff with the SEC, right? So it's, it's, it's a process there, right? So it's real documents out in the wild now. So I think that part is not something to be overlooked within all that too. Ultimately helpful, but definitely takes some time. Yeah, makes sense. Under our uh, scripted question, I think it'll segue nice from what you just said. 
Crowdfunding within the sports betting industry has some unique challenges due to stigma and varying degrees of legality within the U.S. How did you navigate those challenges? And what advice do you have based on your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think the stigma is is fading. So I think that's one of the the benefits. You know, everyone has seen a DraftKings or FanDuel commercial at this point. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 out there in the world. You know, I think there still are people with vice issues and things like that, which you're just going to encounter, but it, you know, it doesn't really change a ton. I think it's actually helping that it's now, I think 37 states legalized. So yeah, I, I think that issue somewhat faded, but yeah, there, I've encountered investors that have been like, you know, we just, we just can't do this because of our vice clause. So it, it does happen. Did you encounter any, any problems with platforms or like, you know, significant subsections of users? Because we sort of hit both. And I'm, I'm curious, like, obviously, as you say, it's fading over time, but I'm curious if you ran any significant hurdles with any partnerships on that. Yeah, for the most part, no. I think we have contracts or, or regulatory things that we've already done to make sure that we've been okay. I think I think the one thing I would say on, on some, like, ad platforms, we, we came into cross issues specifically, like, we had all of our documents that we were supposed to upload showing that we were working with this casino and an XYZ state and, you know, submitted, got approved, ran the ads, ads still got blocked. And it was just like, okay, this is silly. Like we, we turned everything in. Okay. So, um, that was probably the only one I'd say, but, and, and that was a little while back. So maybe they fixed that, but other than that, no, most of it's been worked pretty well. Yeah. We spent a while trying to get, uh, like approved to run ads on Google and Facebook. And after a while, we're just like, we're just not going to try to do this anymore. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. Took a while to get around a lot of the platforms, even with submitting all the documents. But yeah, so some of them still just, we, like you said, we just gave up. We said, all right, next. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, one scenario we're entertaining as we think about fundraising is taking a portion of the capital we raised from VCs and then using that to do a supplemental crowdfunding run. So sort of like a, a budget, if you will, to begin crowdfunding. And the idea here is this gives us leverage to take less money from VCs if the valuation isn't where we want it to be. And it gives us options. And how much cap? Good. Do you mean like for marketing or? This would be for crowdfunding specifically. Although like there is kind of some overlap with marketing doing crowdfunding really, what, because people what, need to know about it. What are you spending on crowdfunding, I guess? That's the question. How much capital would you recommend budgeting for a round of crowdfunding? And what's a reasonable range of outcomes to expect if we take the same approach you did? Yeah, I don't think the capital is very intensive to do the crowdfunding. I think it's a lot more of just you talking to a lot of people, which is <laughs> your time budgeting more than I think your your money budgeting, because, you know, you have to get people aware of your product out there. And like we, we did some stuff on LinkedIn that definitely helped. I, I probably went to like a networking event like every night for multiple weeks and just trying to meet people, explain what I'm doing, explain how they can invest super easily on Start Engine. We even printed some business cards that might even have one around somewhere that, you know, had our company on one side and the Start Engine campaign on the other side, handing those out at conferences and, and other events. And so, yeah, I think it's more for us that like guerrilla style marketing efforts where you're just out there on the streets and, and virtually, right? Like, I think I'm sure there's some amount of marketing spend that could reasonably be worthwhile. I don't know if you, you know, we just talked about the Google and Facebook ads being challenging. So, but you know, it's hard to reach 
investors, right? And like, or people that are in the right investor bucket category, I think your own network is going to be the biggest asset that you have to this and, and your own users, right? Because then they're going to be the ones that already know you and are funding this. And for the most part, that that's how a lot of the success came, I guess. So I know what I've heard in the past about crowdfunding is that the level of professionalism and sort of polish on your campaigns has risen just drastically over the last like couple of years since crowdfunding became like a real thing. So I'm curious, you know, outside of marketing, did you have to spend any significant amount of money to like just get that whole layer of polish on your video, on the presentation, on any PowerPoints or anything like that that you might have uploaded? I, I mean, yeah, definitely you, you need to have all that, right? Like everyone expects everything to look professional if you're you know, giving someone money. Um, we have some some good graphics guys. I think we paid a little bit yet to get the video done, which I hope came out good. I'm assuming it did because some stuff happened. And then, yeah, like LinkedIn was probably the best place of where we spent any money on things. I think we we hired some some people to connect us with, you know, like potential investor leads. They go out and scrape all these people that, okay, there's all these guys that have already invested in angel amounts. They usually write this doll, like small checks. They do this, they you know, they're, they've talked about it online before on their posts or whatever. And so like, they'll, you know, message those people with some sort of context about how you're raising funds on start engine and what your company's about and you should check us out. And then definitely had good results from that, those efforts, I'd say, so, you know, those are, it's like, you know, it's a professional thing. It's like Instagram isn't, or TikTok probably isn't the place for like, you should invest in my company as much as on, on LinkedIn. I think having all that right. more professional, um, that that was the best, at least in terms of our outreach. Okay. We'll have to redo our plan then. Probably not Etsy and Pinterest. <laughs> so I think that's a, that's a good lead into the next question. What incentives did you offer to those contributors? Um, and how did each of them perform? Like, did you see that various tier, like specific tiers perform better than others? And then secondly, if you were starting from scratch based on those learnings, how would you structure incentives now to raise as much as possible? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know how much a ton of the incentives, you know, a couple of the giveaways are like a t-shirt at the, you know, at the beginning levels and things like that, right? It's like not super exciting, I guess. Uh, you know, we did give away some like software licenses, which a couple of people were super excited about getting and we kept emailing us, you know, like, okay, I'm in, like, when do I get my, to use this? So that's been, that was kind of cool. So maybe if we'd reduced that, more people would have kind of jumped up a little to get that. You know, I don't know exactly what the right interest levels are. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if that mattered a ton. Again, I think most of the people that we chatted with were either like people we knew and like more interested about the investment and like how this is going to be a good investment and why, you know, why we're making good progress and things like that. We had just gotten our GLI certification done and won some startup pitches and, and things like that. So like we had, you know, tried to time the news with what was happening with the raise. So we had exciting things always that, you know, we signed a bunch of clients. So we had a bunch of good kind of news all leading up into that, which I think was helpful in attraction, right? At the end of the day, that's all of this. Right. What was the like full set of incentives you did offer for contributors? And specifically, did you offer equity at any level of contribution? Well, I think everyone gets some equity as part of the crowdfunding platform. Don't 100% remember offhand. I think there were different levels for some, you know, giveaway stuff. And then, let's see, pulled up here. You get 10% extra shares. You get an extra avatar in the in our app. Um, 
And then, yeah, share bonuses. So it was mostly based on, I guess, just getting more shares within the company, a little more access to the, to the software or the different levels. So we had, we had a 250, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, and 25. So those were our, our kind of levels. So I, I, yeah, seemed like a lot of people did the 1,000 one. So maybe that was the right one. Actually, one more follow-up to that line of thought. Uh, how many total, I guess it's two questions. How many total people contributed to your crowdfunding campaign? And if you look at it from like a Pareto principle perspective, how many people contributed the 25,000, right? Like if you could take 75% of what you raised and remove 50 people who contributed the 1,000, like, would that be worth it to you? Yeah. Interesting question. I think, you know, when we were going into this, we were like, okay, we're going to raise like a hundred grand. It's going to be great. You know, it's going to help us like short term while we're figuring out what we're doing next round. And then. We ended up raising like 225K. So that was awesome to kind of double the expectations. I think we raised it from 83 different investors and trying to see if I have a breakdown here. of like the Delta. I don't think a ton of people did the, the 25K amount. So, you know, it was a different chunk. So, you know, I think a lot of it is like a lot of people don't have 25K that they want to invest, but they do have like, you know, thousand. That seems more fair for them, right? To like, get in early on a startup. And so, yeah, even we had, we had even a couple at, at the 250 decent amount. I think even that is worth just, you know, you, you create almost this little army now of people that are invested in your company. And when you send out news and things like they share that with them, people that they know, right. And it's like, oh, look at this company I invested in. Even if it's 250 bucks, like it's exciting to like hear news about the startup and, and you, know, you want to share that with other people and like use the software yourself usually as well. And so. I think that was like the exciting part of ultimately doing this crowdfunding round. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Out of curiosity, how many total shares did you have at the time? I don't know offhand. 10 million. It's just, yeah, something like that. We have a, okay. you know, some, some, some large amount of outstanding. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I was trying to figure out like what is the mapping from share to equity? So yeah, we priced it ourselves. So we were able to price it at a dollar twenty-five a share, right? Okay, and this is all I think still available on Start Engine slash Sparkit, so you can see a lot of this. Um, yeah, it's all public information. Did you raise any money from VCs after your crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, we have okay. at the beginning of this year, going into this year, and still currently raising. Always, right? Yeah, fair. Always be closing so, deals. Always be raising money. I guess, right? Like that's how you get that stuff done. So you said you priced the crowdfunding yourself. Did that valuation carry over to your conversations with VCs? Yeah. So we had previously raised at a valuation. And so we just basically were able to continue that same valuation over. So nice. that helps. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, like the, the, yeah, a lot like to think everyone, about down that line. Yeah. It's a little tricky. Everyone is basically state, you know, I guess the one thing I would say is we thought we'd be continuing to have the valuation go up because of, I'd say like macro and, you know, just the economy, we ended up like just staying where we were, which isn't bad. Um, always like hoping you're going to raise that, like, you know, higher than the crowdfunding, but we, you know, we just stayed at the numbers so that didn't hurt us or anything. Right. Makes sense. Cool. So I've got a very generic question here and that's just what unforeseen challenges or like gotchas with crowdfunding did you encounter? Like stuff we wouldn't think to ask about. Yeah. I think just the expectation of how much we were going to have to bring the investors to the platform and, you know, maybe even start 
potentially some of that work as soon as you can in terms of like networking and, and trying to contact folks and, and tee it, tee it up. Or as soon as you're ready to launch on day one, you have, you know, there's all those incentives, at least on, on start engine for like, you know, if you get X amount of capital in within a certain amount of days, they help promote your stuff. So like hitting those promotions help, I think it's like, they'll, you know, if you're, if you raise like 50 K in the first week, put you on the front page for a whole nother week. Right. So like hitting those targets is good. So like as much as you can, you know, prime the pump there, I think that helped. I think we, you know, we, we had a little bit of momentum at the beginning and then definitely in the middle was harder. And then we started learning about doing some reach outs and networking and LinkedIn and things like that. And then we were able to kind of keep the momentum going, which is exciting, but just kind of, yeah, getting it as much as you can ahead of time would be ideal. Yeah. What was the total duration of your campaign? So we've seen some uh, kind of contradictory stuff there about like, keep it as short as possible versus, you know, if you, if you haven't raised as much as you want after a certain time period, do you extend it? Yeah, I think we were able to hit a milestone that let us extend it. And I, I definitely think it's worth it. You know, as the company, we kept doing more event worthy news while the campaign was running. So, you know, we were, yeah, we closed like two more deals. We won, like I said, a couple additional pitch competitions as it was coming on. We got announced into this other, you know, accelerator program with Stadia. So, you know, having those things kind of continuing to stack really helped. And yeah, I mean, I don't think it hurts to, to keep it open. It just gives more of those people that got an early a chance to see that news and be like, yeah, I invested like, you know, whatever. I invested a thousand dollars in this company. They just since then have you know, gotten into partnership with ESPN or something, right? Like, it's like, that's huge. And then now other people want to, you know, get in and that, in that route. I think it just helps. Cause then like, like I said, you have this other people who are invested with you. So. Yeah. So if I could maybe try to synthesize everything you said, just to make sure that I didn't miss any big points. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying is a tee up some big wins in advance of like immediately, ideally in advance of starting your campaign, um, start doing networking in advance, tee up some people to start searching on LinkedIn for potential investors also. And then throughout the course of the campaign, hopefully all of these things have sort of cumulatively led you to a place where you have momentum building rather than dissipating. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, you know, timing is everything in life, right? If you were, if you knew you were launching the campaign and you were also able to, like I said, like close a deal with ESPN that, that came out this, the day after the campaign launched, right? Like that would be huge. Right. And then, right. So like, you know, obviously that's not, uh, it's easier said than done there. Uh, I would, I would love to have done that as well, but you know, we had some, some good news that came out around that time and continued to do, which, which definitely helped in our storytelling too, just for talking to investors, like, look, we just had this press to so this press and we were able to link it. And you know, so it, it, yeah, as much as you can kind of try to predict the timing there, um, it's, it's just going to be more beneficial. Makes sense. All right. I think you've tackled all of our questions we had prepared. So you got anything else? No, I think that's everything. Thank you so much. This is super helpful. Yeah. Giving us a lot to think about. Yeah. I think, you know, just timing and, 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 and network are going to be what helps you'd be the most successful at the end of the day. So as much as you can try and sync those up and leverage all that, yeah, that's nice. the best advice I can do. And then, yeah, like I said, just doing all the due diligence, like you, you touched on the professionalism on everything. It's kind of like the expectation nowadays, right? So yeah, yeah. The, right. the scrappy startup, just throwing together something on a page, like those days are gone. <laughs> I, I do have one more. I'm curious, um, what 
value do you think this brought as compared to like a VC round? Like, would you do this again or would you go for a VC round instead? You know, if you had to do it all over again. I mean, I think it depends on the, on the VC and the terms, obviously, like, you know, if you get with the very strategic VC and they're able to help and, and knit you with all the right dots and, you know, just jokingly, like get you that ESPN deal, right? At that right time, right? Like, you know, that's obviously like huge and it's less people you're potentially interacting with, but yeah, no, I know. I don't, I think we would still do what we did given the timing and the climate and, you know, fundraising's challenging at all points for all startups, but especially this environment is extremely challenging. So I think, you know, very fortunate to have raised what we raised through that at the time we did. So helped us out tremendously. And yeah, now, like I said, now we have a lot of people in our network that are also invested. So that, that part's awesome. Uh, but yeah, I think even the due diligence we started in like June, it couldn't go live till September. Right. So like just takes a long time to set everything up and, and time everything. Yeah, it makes sense. So essentially you're saying it all depends on, on the terms. Based on the term that you were getting, though, it sounds like it was totally worth it and no regrets. Yeah. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Ton of effort, but definitely don't regret doing it. It's great. Great. Um, ultimate experience there. Right on. I have one quick question for the road here. If uh, you're up for it, Aaron. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right on. So look, I guess just the arc of the Sparkit journey, right? You sort of talked about how you did the crowdfunding campaign and after the fact, right, you're continuing to raise money through more, I guess, traditional institutional firms, whatever. Uh, you've also since come into an accelerator program. So I guess my question is like, particularly for uh, institutional investors, right? Like what signal does it send to them by virtue of having gone through what is, appears to be a su successful crowdfunding campaign, right? Like does it help you or hurt you or is it sort of net neutral insofar as those conversations go to have had a successful campaign sort of behind you and, and everything that comes with that? Like how has that helped or hindered or otherwise for, for you guys? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, the, the, the big downside I would say is, is right, there's more people on your cap table that always makes things messy, but you know, there's software and Excel for that. It's not like the end of the world. Um, so that, that doesn't really overly concern me. You know, ultimately I think it shows that we're, you know, our, our kind of grit as a company and that we're, we're able to get through all this, and, you know, start generating revenue and, and figure things out and, and keep surviving through these crazy economic times. And, you know, in the end of the day, it shows that you're able to do something and, and it, it did help a lot with due diligence process because now we already have all this ready to go and we're already reporting financials and things like that. So I think ultimately it's overall a positive. Um, yeah, I think it's shows you're, you're willing to hustle and get things done, which we have, you have to do if you're a startup. So. 100%. Awesome. Well, look, Aaron, yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been really insightful to kind of get a window into the crowdfunding journey and sort of, you know, learn a little bit from Sparkit's experience going through it. And hopefully for people listening, particularly other founders or entrepreneurs that are considering crowdfunding themselves. So really appreciate you sharing everything. And Drew Sahil, we'll see you guys back here again next week with episode six of Betting On It. So we'll see you guys again then. Cheers. Cheers.